want to say a welcome to those of you who are watching online this morning. Uh, greetings. And if you're somewhere warm and sunny, you need to know it's 35 degrees Celsius here today. And um, we wish you were here. Uh, if you're listening through a translator this morning, welcome to you as well. And we're always so grateful for um, our translation ministry. And, uh, you know, it's an enormous responsibility, first of all, to receive our sermon notes, hopefully earlier in the week, the better, then to have to try to make sense of them and then to translate them, and then to hope that we stick to our notes. So we're so grateful to, uh, to the folks that do translate for us all through the service. It's an incredible ministry, so thank you to you. I don't know how many of you have ever been lost in the dark. Put up your hand if you've ever been lost in the dark. Maybe uh, you were camping and, and were kind of out in the woods. Uh, maybe your parents said to you at curfew, you know, come home at dark, and you pushed it a little too long, and you ended up coming home in the dark. Um, I got lost in the dark multiple times in my own bedroom. I'm a really deep sleeper, and in high school, I have these awful memories of waking up in the night and... Uh, trying to find my way out of the room and not being able to find my way. And part of it was because I wasn't really awake and I would be trying to find the door and kind of groping around the walls so desperately, so frustrated that I couldn't find my way out. And it's not like my bedroom was an octagon. It was a square, but still, for whatever reason, I have these memories of standing against the wall in the pitch black, hands against it, and so frustrated with myself thinking, how hard can this be? <laughs> We have five weeks left in the story series that we started last September. And today we get to a powerful, a beautiful, a difficult passage of scripture where we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And the theme of this last day of Jesus' life was that of darkness. And in our readings this week, as you came through the, the stories of Jesus' death, um, they're difficult and they're challenging and we're gonna go through them this morning. And it got me thinking to how many people spend their life in times of darkness. Whether it's a day, whether it's a month, whether it's a season or a long chapter, they're in a time that just feels like darkness. And I'm not talking about mental illness and I'm not talking about depression. I'm talking about people who've kind of lost their way and are struggling. Maybe it's a time of spiritual uncertainty. They don't know if they're a Christian or not. They don't know if God loves them. They don't know if they can pray to God and receive his help. Maybe they were baptized at a point in their life, but they haven't really been living uh, the Christian life. And so they just, they aren't sure. They're uncertain and it's confusing for them. Maybe it's a darkness that's brought on by regret or guilt. Living with the weight of mistakes, past mistakes, maybe recent mistakes. Maybe it's living with the consequences of our mistakes but it can create what feels like a prison to us and we feel like we're in a season of darkness. Maybe it's just darkness because we don't really have any hope. We don't know if there's a God. We do not know if we can trust God. We don't know if there's any order to this universe or not. And sometimes it just feels like we live in darkness. I was thinking about a time when myself and some of our church leaders we're with a family in their most difficult day. In fact, we were with somebody as they were dying and with them when they died. In this family, there was no faith. Um, they did not know Christ. Uh, and in that moment, you know, it was darkness. 
And whether you're in a season of darkness that's short or whether you're in one that's long, whether it's you or whether it's somebody you know, we've got great news for you today. And so if you will hang with me, I know we're gonna go through the crucifixion of Christ, but if you will hang with me today, we are going to make our way out of this darkness. When we did our readings this week, we realized that Jesus spent his last day in darkness. He was arrested in the dark. He appears before a religious court in the middle of the night. They have no power to to issue a death sentence to him, so they pass him off to the political court. They hold the trial for him also in the middle of the night, and, and he gets sentenced to death. You can imagine for a second your response if you had a friend who said, look, uh, last night I got picked up at 1.30, I was arrested. Uh, at 3.30 in the morning, uh, there was a, a court w- was held and I was found guilty in the middle of the night. You would be suspicious of such a thing. When daylight comes, Jesus is led to the place where he will be crucified, which was a normal way of killing people by the Romans. And it says that darkness came again. Let's read it. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read from verses 25 to 41. Um, You might just want to just listen this morning, just kind of absorb it. Or maybe you want to follow along. If that helps you as well, you can turn to it in your Bibles. Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 25. And it reads like this. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And we'll come to that in a minute. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, so these are the religious people of the day, mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ or Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. In this passage, it says that Jesus On the third hour, they crucified him. So it was 9 a.m. in the morning by their way of keeping time when they hung him on the cross. Now, symbolically, this is important. Remember, all of this is taking place during the festival of Passover. There was two sacrifices a day during this festival. And what would happen is the priest would sound the shofar. Remember a number of weeks ago, I downloaded the shofar app and I blew on it and it made that awful sound. You remember that? 
I know you all went home and downloaded it as well. At that time, the priest would sound the shofar or the trumpet, and it would signify that the sacrifice is taking place. And whether you were at the temple or whether you were out kind of about your business, whether you were at work, you were at home, you were doing your grocery shopping, when you heard that trumpet sound, you stopped. You would stop because it had been drilled into you from an early age when you first started worshiping that when we sin, something dies. And when you heard that shofar sound, you knew that a sacrifice was being made in your place on behalf of because of your sins. And at nine o'clock in the morning, the exact time when the first sacrifice is made, it says Jesus was hung on the cross. He did not die right away, but the crucifixion began. It then says that three hours later, at noon, the sky goes dark, and it remains dark for three hours until Jesus dies. Now remember, this is like the 4th of July weekend in Jerusalem. There's thousands and thousands of people who've gathered together for this huge worship celebration. People have come as family. They're connecting with old friends. It's old home week. And right in the middle of this enormous event, it gets dark for three hours in the middle of the day. How many of you remember Super Bowl 2013? Super Bowl is one of the largest sporting events in the world every year. And in Super Bowl 2013, in the middle of the game, the lights went out at the stadium where it was being played. For 34 minutes, the stadium was in darkness. 73,000 people sat there and waited and wondered what was going on. Millions of people watched on TV. And I don't know what, if you watched the game and what you thought as soon as you saw that the lights went out. Most people thought a terrorist attack or everybody kind of thought something bad is happening. Well, at the moment that Jesus hangs on the cross, the lights go out. And a couple of stories from the Old Testament would have sprung to mind for these Jewish people would have popped into their memory, and neither of them were good. The first story probably was the story of uh, back when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Moses and Pharaoh got into a bit of a showdown, and God used 10 plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. And one of the plagues was darkness. It reads like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, lift your hand toward heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered in a darkness so thick that you can feel it. Maybe you've been in a darkness like that. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. During all of that time, the people could not see each other and no one moved. It was a paralyzing darkness. The second story that would have come into people's minds at that time was a very common and popular image that ran throughout the prophets in particular and that is the imagery around the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was the day of judgment, the day that God would come back to his people and he'd set things right once and for all. And once and for all, he would deal with the sin that had so marred his creation. And there's all kinds of lovely, cheery verses that kind of capture this image of the day of the Lord. May I share one with you for your listening pleasure? Isaiah chapter 13 says this, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This warning of the day of the Lord, it runs throughout 
the prophets in the Old Testament. But the common theme among it was when the day of the Lord comes, when God comes once and for all to deal with the sin of the world, it will be dark. So, whether the worshipers in Jerusalem standing in the dark at lunchtime thought of the plagues of Egypt or thought about this day of the Lord uh, verses from the Old Testament, they knew that God somewhere and somehow was dealing with sin. Which raises a question. Why does God have to deal with sin like this? Why couldn't have God just said, look, no worries, all is forgotten. Or look, you did a bunch of bad stuff, we're gonna overlook it and give everybody a fresh start. Why couldn't have God had just done that? Why did Jesus need to die on the cross? And actually, you know the answer to this question. The answer is that love requires a payment for sin. Love requires it. How many of you have been wronged? So maybe someone stole your bike or maybe somebody hurt you. I mean, they really hurt you. And what if I just came by and said, look, it's, it's unfortunate that these things had to happen to you, but it's gonna be a whole lot easier if we just forget about it and move on. You would say internally, you know what? That doesn't sound right to me. There's interesting, there's a story on the news this week. Um, they were interviewing a Syrian man, formerly a refugee, now living in Canada, about all that's gone on in, the U- in Syria this last week with the U.S. airstrikes. And this is not a political commentary. There's a sermon illustration here. Listen for it. His perspective was interesting. The Syrian man was saying, you know what? The government, he said, cannot be punished by the United States because the government has not harmed the United States. He said, only Syrians can harm or get retribution or deal with the government because the sin, so to speak, is between us. Which is their way of saying, we were the ones hurt. They hurt us. Someone else cannot solve this problem for us. Because each of us know deep within our hearts when someone wrongs us, when someone hurts us, there needs to be justice. It needs to be dealt with. And when someone wrongs us, we have two choices. Let me illustrate it this way. Maybe you've got a $500 mountain bike and you lend it to a friend who goes off and uses it all day and they're going through the woods and they're going over cliffs and going through the rivers and when they bring it back to you, it's totally destroyed and no, no longer of any use to you. You've got two choices. First, you can say to them, you owe me $500. It's plain and simple. You did $500 worth of damage. You pay me $500. It's all taken care of. The other option is for you to forgive that person and say, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Now, if you do that, then what you are doing is you are going to absorb the cost of that bike yourself. Well, that's not too extreme of an example. Let's use this one. Maybe someone has hurt you. I mean, they they really, they hurt you. They wronged you. They deceived you, they assassinated your character, they wounded your reputation. Maybe they stole a chapter of your life through some lies and you were really, really hurt. You've got two choices. One, you can return the favor. You can hurt them. You can get them back. You can tarnish their character, tarnish their reputation. You can try to get even with them. You can try to inflict on them the same amount of pain and suffering that they have in turn inflicted on you. This is the option that feels like it's going to be the most fun. But the truth is, when we make that choice, we have simply become like them. 
The other option, and the way more painful option, is to offer forgiveness. And what happens is we end up suffering when we offer forgiveness to somebody because we are absorbing the cost. Whether it's the emotional pain of other people's actions or the consequences of it, we end up absorbing the pain from those decisions. And this is the path of forgiveness. It's the path of healing. And it's the way more difficult choice. And when God sends his son to die on a cross, he's saying this, your sins against me they matter. Your sins against other people, they matter. Other people's sins against you, they matter. And God says, I have two choices. First of all, I can make you pay for your sins. I can make you responsible for all that you have done wrong, both to me and to other people. Or, and as we saw in our readings this week, God could say, I will forgive you for your sins. But this is going to require me absorbing the wrong, absorbing the sin, absorbing your darkness into myself to pay the debt because it needs to be dealt with. And when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, as difficult as it is, it's the beautiful act of love. When God, our Heavenly Father, says to us, I will stand in your place, and I will absorb your wrongdoings, I will absorb all of your darkness into myself once and for all and deal with all of your sin. And in the middle of this darkness, Jesus hanging on the cross in the darkness for three hours, a great transfer was taking place. When Jesus, the perfect one, hangs on the cross, God transferred all of our sin to Jesus. And Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, which is a Bible word which means he's right before God. He and God are just great. There's nothing awkward between it. There's no sin. There's no wrongdoing. They're just, he's right before God. All of Jesus' rightness or his righteousness gets transferred to us. Martin Luther, the great theologian, said this, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And Christ's righteousness, or his right status before God, is no longer his, but it's ours. So as difficult as this image is for us to read about and to hear about, and we're going to do that again on Friday, a beautiful transfer is taking place. And when we entrust our life to Christ, this transfer takes place. And from that moment on, think about this for a second, when God looks at you and I, he does not see our sin any longer. He does not see those things that we've been working so hard to keep secret that we hope that nobody ever finds out about. He takes all of that, places it on Christ, and he takes Christ's righteousness and places it on us. And when God looks down at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ once and for all. Not for a short time, not as long as we're good, not as long as we keep doing a certain list, religious list, from there forward. That is now how God sees us. The Gospels all say that Jesus died at three in the afternoon. I told you earlier that at the Passover, there was two sacrifices every day during the Passover festival. Two times when the ram's horn, the shofar, was blown to acknowledge that a sacrifice was being made. 
The first one was at 9 a.m. when Jesus was stood up on the cross and the crucifixion began. Can you guess what time the second one was held? At three o'clock. At 3 p.m., Jesus dies. At 3 p.m., the ram's horn is sounded to signify that a sacrifice for sins is being made. And at 3 p.m., the darkness is lifted. That thick, black, paralyzing darkness that traps us is now gone. And it's like Genesis chapter one all over again. God says, let there be light, and there is light. And from here on in, as we continue to read through the New Testament, you're gonna see again and again that Christians are called people of the light. They walk in the light. They're children of the light. They walk in the light of life again and again. And it's referring to this image that the darkness has been dealt with. And we are now God's children who live and walk in light. There's an interesting nameless character that just appears in one verse almost in passing at the very end of this chapter in Mark's Gospel. He's simply referred to as the Roman centurion. Now look, Roman centurions were rough dudes. It's fair to say that they lacked some of the social graces of their day. They presided over prisoners and they presided over death. They went to work in the morning, they punched in, they worked with prisoners, people were killed, they cleaned up the mess, they went home, the end of the day, repeat, repeat, repeat. Death and prisoners was part of their daily gig. So to see someone like Jesus being crucified was just a normal day at the office. But it was captured by Mark's description of this centurion. It says, he stood there in front of Jesus and saw how he died. He was standing there face to face with Jesus for six hours. There was nowhere to hide. Jesus looking down on him. He looking up at Jesus. Jesus was able to look down and see all of his shortcomings, all of his mess, all of his shame, and all of his brokenness. And this centurion was able to look up and see Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to seek and save the lost. And somewhere, somehow, Jesus enters into this man's darkness. And a great transfer takes place. This man's sin for Christ's right standing or his righteousness. Jesus takes his darkness and sin and shines his light into the centurion's heart. And he ends up making this powerful, powerful proclamation at the end that indeed this man was the son of God. Easter is a season for you and I to stand face to face with Jesus on a cross and wrestle with why he died for us. It's a time when we come face to face with him it's a time when he looks at all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our dysfunction and mess. And it's a time when he longs to shine his light into our darkness. For him to take all of our sins and we get to get it traded for his rightness or his righteousness so that we can be made whole. This Easter season, it is our hope and prayer that you will take some time to reflect on all of that. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time and Easter's just another big hullabaloo to do in the middle of the, in the season. We come and it's a great big thing and we go home and we never really stop to think about that when God looks down on us, he sees Christ's righteousness. 
Think about the impact of that on how you pray and how you think about yourself and how you live out your life. And maybe today for the very first time, you would think about the opportunity that you don't have to live in darkness any longer and that Christ longs to shine his light into your life and to set you free. I'm gonna close in prayer and uh, maybe the words that I pray will reflect a desire in your own heart today to experience that great transfer. And if that is the case, then when I'm done and when the service is over, you can, we would love to chat with you about what God is speaking to you about this morning. Let me pray. Lord, today I acknowledge that I am a sinner. And I realize that you took my darkness upon yourself and that you are offering me the opportunity to be right, to be clean, to be forgiven, to be set free, to have the darkness lifted and to experience the light that only you can bring. Today, I say yes to you. I welcome this light into my life and I am glad no longer to have to be responsible for all of my sins. And I simply offer my life to you in service.